and welcome to Weird on the Rocks. This is a podcast that explores the weird, unusual, strange, and unexplained, all while getting our drink on. I'm your host, Katie. Thank you, everyone, for joining me today. Today's episode is going to cover a story that has been on my list since I began this podcast and a story that really stuck with me when I first learned about it and that I think of often, and that is the murder and the life of Kitty Genovese. A lot of you have probably heard of this case because in the almost 60 years since it happened, it has become kind of famous and is a true crime case that is mentioned often in pop culture and academia. However, those close to the case have learned in recent years that a lot of the details and lore around the story are actually wildly inaccurate. Most mentions of this case also fail to dive into who exactly Kitty Genovese was, but instead focus on surrounding factors that played a role in her murder. So today, my goal is to shed light not only on the truth of what happened the night Kitty was murdered, but also who Kitty was, because by all accounts, she was an amazing person. I hope that you all enjoyed today's episode, and I also hope that maybe some of you who have learned about this case in a sociology or psychology class can learn some new details today that perhaps your course material did not cover. You can find the show on Facebook and Instagram at Weird on the Rocks Podcast and the website weirdontherocks.weebly.com. Please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening now so that you always get the latest episode as soon as it's released. Before we get into the good stuff, I want to share this week's beverage of choice. Tonight, I am drinking some apple juice with fireball whiskey. I'm drinking it cold right now, but I've also had it warm, which is really good too. This is one of my favorite like festive wintertime drinks, and it's super easy. It's just apple juice and fireball. Um, you can just whip it up quickly. If you have not tried this combination, I highly recommend it. I usually cannot stand whiskey. I do not touch the stuff, but I love the cinnamon taste of Fireball, so I make an exception for this stuff. All right, well, let's get into it. Cheers, and let's get weird. in March of 1964, 28-year-old Kitty Genovese was murdered. Her killing took place on a brightly lit public street in a quiet Queens neighborhood. Kitty screamed for over half an hour while her killer stabbed her multiple times, left, then came back and continued to stab her. She lay bleeding in the street while 38 of her neighbors sat by and did nothing to help. After being stabbed numerous times, Kitty had the strength to crawl into the lobby of her apartment building, where she slowly bled to death, alone and still screaming. Eventually, the police and ambulance came to the scene, and Kitty died on the way to the hospital. The murder of Kitty, a young, attractive white woman, became the textbook example of how dangerous New York City had become, 
and the apathy of her 38 neighbors who did nothing while she was viciously attacked, not once or twice, but three times, became the example of how people don't want to get involved when strangers are in trouble. The media quickly grabbed onto the story and used it to paint a picture of how crime had crept into even the nicest of New York neighborhoods, and that nothing was being done to stop it. Why had her neighbors done nothing? 38 people watched a woman being murdered, and nobody called the police? A few weeks after Kitty's death, the New York Times published an article detailing the events of her murder and looking deeper into why nobody did anything to help. The article begins, quote, For more than half an hour, 38 respectable, law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Twice, the sound of their voices and the sudden glow of their bedroom lights interrupted him and frightened him off. Each time he returned, sought her out and stabbed her again. Not one person telephoned the police during the assault. One witness called after the woman was dead. That was two weeks ago today. But Assistant Chief Inspector Frederick M. Lesson, in charge of the Bureau's detectives and a veteran of 25 years of homicide investigations, is still shocked. He can give a matter-of-fact recitation of many murders, but the Kew Gardens slaying baffles him, not because it is a murder, but because the good people failed to call the police, end quote. Kitty's murder and the idea that so many people sat by silently and watched such a horrific crime happen went on to create the term the bystander effect, which is now a frequently used term in the English language. The bystander effect is defined by Britannica as, quote, the inhibiting influence of the presence of others on a person's willingness to help someone in need. Research has shown that even in an emergency, a bystander is less likely to extend help when he or she is in the real or imagined presence of others than when he or she is alone, end quote. This means that when people know that others are witnessing something too, they are less likely to get involved, assuming that someone else is going to help. The term and the story of Kitty's murder has made its way into almost every introduction of psychology or sociology class in America. It is a question on the graduate school admissions exam, the GRE, and both Perry Mason and Law and & Order have done episodes based off of her murder. But now, almost 60 years since Kitty's murder, it's been discovered that many of the details of her murder were completely incorrect, and that her death has been simplified down to a tale of morality and human behavior completely erasing the woman herself and the real truth of that horrible night. Catherine Susan Genovese was born in Brooklyn in 1935 to Italian-American parents Rachel and Vincent. She grew up Catholic in an Irish-Italian neighborhood and was known to be very funny, confident, and outgoing. Her classmates described her as incredibly funny and really good at impressions, and she was even voted class cut-up her senior year. Kitty was popular, stylish, kind, and well-liked by everyone. In 1954, Kitty's mother witnessed a murder and, afraid for the safety of her family, decided to move them to Connecticut. Kitty, who had just graduated from high school, loved the city life and decided to stay behind in New York, but visited her family in Connecticut regularly. Her brother Bill, who was 16 at the time of her death, remembers her coming home on the weekends and always being so cool. She was an open book with him, answering any questions about life or the city that he could think of. Kitty worked several clerical jobs, which she did not enjoy, 
and eventually found herself working as a bartender, which she loved and was extremely good at. Her customers said that she had a way of cutting off people when they'd had too much to drink, but in such a lovely way, they would still end up tipping her. She was known to be sweet and joyful, always smiling and cracking jokes, but also had the confidence to work a bar alone as a woman in New York City. In 1961, Kitty was arrested for placing horse racing bets through the bar she worked at and was fined $50 and lost her job. However, with her experience, she was able to find another bartending job quickly, which promoted her to bar manager. Kitty worked long hours and often pulled doubles and was saving up her money to one day open her own Italian restaurant. Kitty was a lesbian, and although her family wasn't aware of her sexuality, she was more open about her sexuality with her close friends and loyal customers. She met her girlfriend Marianne at a lesbian bar called The Swing Rendezvous. Kitty approached Marianne and said, Don't I know you from somewhere? Marianne said no, and Kitty said, Yeah, I think I do. I'm Kitty, and then asked her to dance. Later, they ended up losing one another in the crowd and didn't see each other again until Kitty found out where Marianne lived and left her a note on her doorstep that said, I'll call you at seven, the phone across the street. The two immediately began dating and soon moved in together, but always only referred to one another as their roommate. At 2.30 a.m. on March 13th, 1964, Kitty left the bar she was working at called Ev's 11th Hour in Queens and she headed home in her red Fiat. She originally had plans to stay with a friend and regular customer who lived above the bar because she had to return early the next day for the opening shift. But at the last minute, she decided to return home to the apartment she shared with Marianne in the Kew Gardens apartment building. While stopped at a stoplight, Kitty was spotted by 29-year-old Winston Mosley, who was parked in his car. Later, Mosley would tell police that he specifically went out that night looking for a woman to rape and kill. Seeing Kitty driving alone in the dark, Mosley decided to follow her. Kitty parked her car in a parking lot about 100 feet from her apartment building's entrance. As she got out of her car and began to walk towards the apartment building, Mosley exited his car and came up behind Kitty. Kitty, now aware of someone behind her, began to quicken her pace. Mosley would later say that he could tell she was afraid of him. Kitty began to sprint toward the building, but Mosley caught up to her and immediately stabbed her twice in the back with a hunting knife. Kitty screamed loudly and yelled out, Oh my God, he stabbed me. Help me. At this time, people in Kitty's apartment building and the building across the street were awoken. Some say they heard her words. Some say they only heard a scream. Many of the apartment residents described it as one of those screams that you hear while you're asleep and it awakens you, but it's hard to tell if it was real or in a dream. Many recall going to their windows and seeing nothing and returning to bed. A Kew Gardens resident by the name of Robert Moser was able to get a glimpse of Mosley and in a police report said, quote, I saw this girl at the bookstore kneeling and a man with his head down bending over her. And I yelled, hey, get out of here. And he got up and ran. He ran like a scared rabbit. I've never seen someone run so quick. End quote. Scared that someone saw him, Mosley ran away, leaving Kitty seriously injured and crawling towards the apartment building entrance, hidden by the shadows of the dark, unlit city street. However, less than 10 minutes later, Mosley returned, this time wearing a wide-brim hat. 
He searched the streets and parking lot for Kitty, eventually finding her laying by the back entrance to the apartment. He then proceeded to stab her again multiple times, steal $49 from her purse, and sexually assault her. He then left the scene and drove away, leaving Kitty alone to die. The two attacks lasted half an hour, and Kitty received 14 stab wounds, as well as many lacerations to her hands from trying to defend herself. Eventually, the police and medical personnel arrived at the scene and transported Kitty to the hospital, where she was pronounced dead in the ambulance. This is the story that was widely reported and the story that Kitty's family and friends were left with for years. After the police conducted their interviews and investigations, they concluded that 38 people witnessed the attacks and did nothing while Kitty died alone. The events of Kitty's death and the apathy of her neighbors haunted Kitty's family, especially her brother Bill, who was 16 at the time of her murder. Bill idolized Kitty and couldn't live with the thought that nobody tried to help her. After Kitty's death, like the rest of his family, Bill tried to move on and pretend like nothing happened. He tried not to think about his sister's brutal murder and didn't question the events of that night. He said that his parents never talked about the murder and seldomly talked about Kitty herself. Two years after the murder, Bill graduated high school and remembers hating his friends who sat by doing nothing while the Vietnam War was going on, just waiting to be drafted. He thought they were apathetic bystanders, like the people who had witnessed his sister's murder, and he could not stand by and do the same. So he voluntarily enlisted in the Marines and was sent to Vietnam, where he lost both of his legs in combat, making him dependent on a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Bill's wife, Kathy, says that she believes that many of the choices Bill made in his life can be tied back to the fact that he believed his sister died alone and that nobody tried to help her, and that he has always been searching for closure and an answer as to why and how this could have happened. In 2014, Bill Genovese decided to take the story of his sister's murder into his own hands and revisit the details of that horrible night to see if he could find any new information and make sense of what he already knew. Bill was able to uncover so much unreported information and key witness testimonies that in 2015, his findings were released in a documentary called The Witness that premiered on HBO. Bill began with the information he knew, which was mostly from the New York Times piece that was published two weeks after Kitty's murder. The article hardly mentioned Kitty at all, but instead focused on those elusive 38 witnesses who did nothing. Bill needed to know what exactly those people saw and heard and what actions they took or didn't take. Bill found a 2020 episode, which originally aired in 1979, that revisited Kitty's murder and attempted to speak to some of the 38 people that the police report said witnessed the crime. However, the episode did not provide the firsthand interviews that Bill was hoping to see because everyone the show contacted did not want to be publicly interviewed. In order to understand why people were so apprehensive about speaking out, Bill had to look at the culture of that particular neighborhood at the time, as well as the political climate. In New York City in 1964, people were not trusting of the police, including white people and those of affluent economic status. The New York City police were known to be corrupt and to have slow response times. Many people instead took matters into their own hands when needed, instead of contacting the authorities. 
This was also a time before the 911 system had even been created. If someone wanted to call the police, they had to know their local precinct number and call there directly to be transferred to an officer, with the whole process taking several minutes. People really only phoned the police for extremely serious matters that they could prove, not like today where people tend to call the police for even the most insignificant of matters. Michael Farrar, who was 14 at the time of the murder and lived in Kitty's apartment building, also mentioned that he remembers many of the residents of the building being Nazi concentration camp survivors and seeing their numbers tattooed on their wrists. He believes that this led to many of the witnesses being afraid of the authorities and afraid of causing trouble by calling the police or volunteering information. These people like to live quiet and peaceful lives, with as little attention drawn to them as possible. There is also the fact that Kitty was a lesbian, and although she did not live an openly gay life, there is a possibility that some of her neighbors knew this. At this time in American history, being gay was still extremely stigmatized, and most gay people lived closeted lives. Hate crimes were far too common, and gay people had no rights. It is possible that neighbors who knew that something was happening to Kitty that night decided not to call the police in fear that something even worse would happen to her upon their arrival if they discovered that she was a lesbian. It was also quite common at the time for men to openly abuse their female partners, and people would just turn a blind eye. It was not out of the ordinary to see a man hit his wife, or verbally attack her. And some people recall thinking that Kitty and her attacker were just in a lover's quarrel and that it was none of their business. Bill Genovese was able to get official documents from the New York City police pertaining to Kitty's murder, including their original interviews with those who lived in the apartment building, as well as notes from the trial that followed her murder. All of the names on the witness reports found in the file were redacted, and many of the reports themselves were illegible, with poor handwriting and scribbles. But from what Bill could decipher from the 51-year-old reports was a common theme, that people heard screams but saw nothing. He was also able to review the witness testimonies from the trial of Winston Mosley, where only five of the 38 supposed witnesses took the stand. Neighbor Irene Frost said in trial, quote, I heard a shriek. I went to the window and see a man and a woman standing across the street by the bookstore. I looked at them a minute and nothing happened, so I went back to bed. The second time she yelled louder, someone please help me, God, please help me, I've been stabbed. I went back to the window and when I got there, she was kneeling down on the sidewalk and he was running up the street, end quote. By the time Bill began his documentary, Irene Frost was deceased. Neighbor Andre Peak said, quote, I heard a voice upstairs screaming something and a man ran away very fast. The poor girl got up very slowly and she yelled, help walking slowly towards the drugstore and up the back street. I was still at the window, scared, kind of frozen. And a few minutes later, that man came back, very normally, as if nothing happened. Then he went down to the train station, and then he came out again, and he left in the back, and I could not see anything, but I heard the last two screams, help, help, end quote. She had also already passed away by the time of the documentary. Without the names of the witnesses to refer to, and with so many of them recently deceased, Bill didn't have much to go on, so he reviewed the original 2020 piece on Kitty's murder that aired in 1979. He reached out to the producer, Aram Boyajian, who said that he still had a list of witnesses, 38 in total. Bill decided to go down the list one by one and try to meet anyone who was still alive. The first witness from the list he visited was Lynn Tillotson, 
who lived in the Kew Gardens apartment and was 19 at the time. She said that she thought the neighborhood was safe, but that people kept their shades drawn and there was a palpable fear amongst her neighbors. That night, she heard a scream that woke her up. She looked outside and saw nothing. Detectives came and talked to her the next day. Bill asked Lynn, quote, Do you think you were one of the 38 that were reported to have done nothing? End quote. And she said, quote, I suppose I could be. I could be counted in that because I woke up, I looked out the window, and I went back to bed. But I wasn't in that group. That wasn't my behavior. End quote. Bill explains to Lynn that in the police report, they said that she and her mother both reported hearing Kitty yelling, George, he's done it to me, and help me, help me, multiple times. Lynn's jaw drops and she is stunned. She says her mother slept through the attack and never even spoke to the police. She says she has no idea who George is and that she adamantly denies hearing anything other than a shriek. The next witness he visited was Hattie Grund, another Kew Gardens resident. She said she heard someone yelling, help, looked out, and saw Kitty, and that she called the police, to which they said they had already received a call. She remembers them not asking for any more information, just that another person had already called it in. She says, quote, The Kew Gardens residents got aroused when the papers said that we were apathetic because we were not. We were always the people that called, end quote. Hearing Hattie say she called the police, who said they had already received a call, intrigued Bill, as he had the belief that nobody called them. Bill went back to the police reports and phone log and saw that only one call was logged from a Kew Gardens resident that night, from a man named Carl Ross, and it came in after the attacker had left. Bill wondered if the police had failed to log the calls properly, or if perhaps Hattie Grund had created a story in the years since Kitty's death that possibly made her feel better. The only logged call was from Carl Ross, who was home alone and drunk. He heard the first attack on Kitty, but was scared and did nothing. The second attack, which happened inside the apartment entrance, was just feet from his apartment. He apparently opened the door several times and could clearly see Winston Mosley stabbing Kitty, but he again did nothing. Before calling the police, Carl called a friend who lived on Long Island, looking for advice, to which the friend said to stay out of it. He then called another neighbor who lived in the apartment building and told her what he was seeing, and she told him to come over. Carl didn't want to exit his apartment and have Kitty's attacker see him, so he instead left through his apartment window and crawled across the roof and into her apartment, where they then proceeded to call the police together. Although Carl Ross has never spoken publicly about Kitty's murder and moved out of the state soon after, many believe that he did not want to get involved because he was also gay and was afraid that the police might know that and harm him in some way. Carl's behavior and interview with the police in which he said, quote, I don't want to get involved, end quote, would be used as an example of apathy for years to come and come to be the general understanding of how all of Kitty's neighbors felt that night. While most people were simply unaware that a vicious attack was happening at all, and others did try to help, instead, this one quote from Carl Ross, the one person who really did have a close-up view of what happened, was published in the papers and was used as the example of how 38 people watched a young woman get murdered before their very eyes because they just didn't want to get involved. 
During the making of his documentary, Bill Genovese was also able to speak with a man named Michael Farrar, who was a young boy living in the Kew Gardens apartment at the time of the murder, and said that his mother, Sophie, was friends with Kitty. Michael said he remembered Kitty well, and that he often would come home from school and find her and his mother sitting in the kitchen having coffee and chatting. Michael says that the night of Kitty's murder, he heard a loud scream, a scream that woke him up from a deep sleep. He said his parents both went and looked out the window, but didn't see anything. Then, about 20 minutes later, his mother received a phone call, then turned to Michael's father and said, Kitty is in the hallway bleeding. His mother, Sophie, immediately ran downstairs and had to enter the entrance hallway from the outside of the building. When Sophie went to open the door, it was blocked by Kitty's limp body laying in the way. She eventually was able to crawl over Kitty and lay with her in the hallway. Sophie cradled Kitty in her lap while Kitty bled profusely and gasped for air. Sophie told Michael later when he was an adult that she could feel the deep stab wounds in Kitty's back as she lay holding and comforting her. Sophie was with Kitty up until the time the ambulance arrived. Michael says he remembers going down to see the crime scene the next day and that there was so much blood in the hall that he could smell it from outside the door. He said that after Kitty's death, his mother did one interview with a reporter who asked her if she could do things again if she would help again, to which she said, yes, of course, it was the right thing to do. However, when the story came out, they printed that she said no, she regretted getting involved. Michael said that his mother lost her respect for the media after that and chose to never publicly talk about Kitty's death again. In the documentary, Bill was shocked to hear that Sophie was there with Kitty as she died because there were no reports of this, and he and his family had always believed she died alone and not in the loving arms of a trusted friend. Bill was also able to speak with Kitty's girlfriend, Marianne. He said he remembers Kitty bringing her home to visit on the weekends, thinking they were just friends, and that after her murder, the family never spoke with Marianne again. Marianne declined being interviewed on camera, but allowed Bill to record their conversation. Marianne told the story of the night Kitty approached her in the bar and then pursued her. She said the night of Kitty's murder, there was a knock on the door at 4 a.m. from the police, thinking she was Kitty's roommate, and they immediately took her downtown to the morgue to identify Kitty's body. She said she knew Carl Ross from the building and that he owned a nearby pet shop where after a fight, Kitty went and bought her a poodle that they named Andrew. She said that after the funeral, Kitty's father told her that he wanted Kitty's dog, but Marianne said no, he was actually hers. Then a few weeks later, she came home to find the dog gone and she never knew what happened to him. Bill says that his father took the dog and brought it home to cheer up his mother, but that she didn't want him, and soon after, the dog disappeared. He apologized to Marianne and was unaware that was how his father had gotten the dog. Marianne goes on to say that she doesn't think she's ever fully healed from the trauma of losing Kitty and the guilt she felt for not being there with her that night. She says she slept with Kitty's shirt for a long time. Bill asked her what she thinks might bring her closure, And she said she thinks a lot about sitting down with Winston Mosley and looking him in the eyes, but that she cannot bring herself to do it. Winston Mosley was 29 at the time of his attack on Kitty. He was from Queens and worked as a tab operator, preparing what were referred to as punched cards that held data for digital computers. He was married with three children. He had no criminal record and was described as soft-spoken and intelligent. 
Mosley was arrested five days after Kitty's murder when he was seen stealing a TV in broad daylight from a house in Queens. Albert Seidman, deputy inspector at the NYPD in 1964, said, quote, Somebody brought in this small, meek-looking black guy. He brought the prisoner up to the detective office, and one of the detectives got an ID and said, You know, that guy looks like he can match the description of the person who killed Kitty Genovese. So we started to question him, and by the time we got done talking to him, I knew he was one of the most bloodthirsty killers I'd ever met. End quote. Mosley confessed to murdering Kitty with zero coaxing from the detectives, corroborating the physical evidence found at the crime scene. He said he went out at 2 a.m. while his wife was working as a nurse and his children were asleep, specifically looking for a woman to rape and kill, and that he didn't care what woman it was. He said he preferred killing women because they were smaller and didn't fight back. During his interrogation, he also admitted to murdering and sexually assaulting another woman named Annie Mae Johnson just two weeks before killing Kitty and committing between 30 and 40 burglaries. He said he was aware of people being nearby while murdering Kitty. He heard Robert Mosier yell down, get out of here, which did scare him off. So he sat in his car and waited to see if anyone came out of the building. And when nobody intervened, he changed hats and went back to finish killing Kitty. He remembered hearing Carl Ross open his door, but quickly realized that he wasn't going to do anything. Winston Mosley went to trial for the murder of Kitty Genovese on June 8, 1964. Mosley initially pleaded not guilty, but his attorney later changed his plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. Charles Scholler, who worked for the prosecution, said, quote, The best word to describe Winston Mosley was ice. Nothing faced him at all. End quote. And Robert Sparrow, whose father defended Mosley and himself was a junior partner at the time, said, quote, Mosley was a very bright but manipulative individual. End quote. The trial lasted only three days, with Mosley himself giving a testimony and describing his actions that night. The jury deliberated for seven hours and came back with a guilty verdict. With a guilty verdict, and Judge J. Irwin Shapiro sentenced him to death and said, quote, I don't believe in capital punishment, but when I see a monster like this, I wouldn't hesitate to pull the switch myself, end quote. Mosley ended up appealing his sentence, claiming that he was medically insane and his sentence was reduced to life in prison. In March of 1968, four years after Kitty's murder, Mosley escaped while being transported back from the hospital after undergoing a small surgery for a self-inflicted injury. He fled to the vacant vacation home of Mr. and Mrs. Matthew Kalaga, where he hid undetected for three days. When the Kalagas came to check on the house, they found Mosley, and he proceeded to tie them up, rape Mrs. Kalaga, then flee in their car. He then entered another home, where he held a woman and her daughter hostage for several hours before releasing them unharmed and surrendered himself to the police. Neil Walsh was the head of the Buffalo FBI unit at the time and was the first to arrive at the house. He said, quote, I walked over and stood at the front of the building, and he said, come in. I sat in a chair and we were about five or six feet apart, and he had a gun pointed at me. I had a gun in my left pocket. I had a direct shot right at him. I believed he was dangerous, but I felt comfortable talking to him. I put my hand out, and I said, let me have the gun, Winston, and you have my guarantee that you will be treated fairly. One thing I was taken aback by was how small he was. You know, I expected a larger presentation of evil. End quote. 
Mosley was taken back to prison where he pled guilty to escape and kidnapping, and a 15-year sentence was added to his life sentence. Winston Mosley was up for parole in 1984, where he proceeded to tell the parole board that being well-known as the murderer of Kitty Genovese made him a victim inside the prison, saying, quote, For a victim outside, it's a one-time or one-hour or one-minute affair, but for the person who's caught, it's forever, end quote. He also tried to say that Kitty's murder was more of a mugging than homicide, and saying, quote, People do kill people when they mug them sometimes, end quote. His parole was denied. He was eligible for parole again on March 13, 2008, exactly 44 years to the day of Kitty's death, where he again was denied parole. In his documentary, The Witness, Kitty's brother Bill tried to have a meeting from prison with Mosley, but he declined. Bill was, however, able to have an on-camera meeting with Winston Mosley's son, Stephen, who was seven years old at the time and is now a pastor. Stephen proceeded to make excuses for his father saying that the murder was racially motivated because Kitty was calling Winston racial slurs. He also tried to claim that Bill and Kitty's family were tied to the Genovese mob family that was located in New York, to which Bill said there was no relation. Stephen also told Bill that it had been 50 years since his sister's murder, and it was time for him to move on. After their meeting, Bill received a handwritten letter from Winston Mosley, sent from prison, in which he said that he wasn't the one who killed Kitty, he was just the getaway driver for a man named Dominic who did the killing, something that he had never mentioned to anyone previously. Winston Mosley died in prison on March 28, 2016, at the age of 81. He had served 52 years, making him one of the longest-serving inmates in the New York State prison system. In 2016, a year after Bill's documentary The Witness was released, the New York Times wrote a second article about Kitty's murder, appending the original article they published in 1964. The article stated, quote, 38. In the mid-60s, almost any New Yorker, and many Americans for that matter, would have been able to answer the question, how many people watched uselessly as Kitty Genovese was stabbed before their eyes? 38. That number was made unforgivably memorable in a front-page article by Martin Gainsbourg in the Times of March 27, 1964. For more than half an hour, it began, 38 respectable, law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. The problem with the article was that some key facts were wrong, or at least subject to much different interpretation, even if its broader conclusion was indisputable that city dwellers are capable of stunning indifference to their neighbors' life and death plights, end quote. It also said, quote, I don't think 38 people witnessed it, Charles Scholler, the former assistant district attorney of Queens, told Jim Rassenberger in 2004. I don't know where that came from, the 38. I didn't count 38. We only found half a dozen that saw what was going on, that we could use. The article grossly exaggerated the number of witnesses and what they had perceived. None saw the attack in its entirety. Only a few had glimpsed parts of it or recognized the cries for help. Many thought they had heard lovers or drunks quarreling. There were two attacks, not three. And afterward, two people did call the police. A 70-year-old woman ventured out and cradled the dying victim in her arms until they arrived. Miss Genovese died on the way to the hospital. End quote. So why did the New York Times and several other publications write stories that included non-factual and elaborated details? Most believe because the more shocking the headline, the more papers are sold. 
Instead of focusing on Kitty herself or the neighbors who did try to help, or the fact that nobody saw the attacks in their entirety and many were completely unaware of the situation, they instead focused on those who did nothing while a young woman died on the streets and put fear into New Yorkers about the evil city they were living in. A 2014 article in the New Yorker titled A Call for Help, What the Kitty Genovese Story Really Tells Us, written by Nicholas Lehman, also shed light on the inaccuracies of the original reports, saying, quote, It's evidence of a kind of editorial genius that Rosenthal, by placing the story in the way that he did, was able to get such a reaction. The tabloids had treated it simply as a sensational tale of urban violence. The Times made sure that its apathetic witness angle would land by predominantly displaying the story on its front page. The murder now stood for a profoundly disturbing sociological trend. The key line in Gainsbourg's story came from one of the witnesses, none of whom were named, who said, I didn't want to get involved. Some of the fascination that racialized, sexualized violence attracts surely rubbed off on the story. It became clear from photographs and from other outlets that Genevieve was white and attractive and that Mosley, a repeat rapist, was black. But the gist of the piece lent itself perfectly to Sunday sermons about a malaise encompassing all of us. It was a way of processing anxieties about the anonymity of urban life, about the breakdown of the restrictive but reassuring social conventions of the 50s, and, less directly, about racial unrest, the Kennedy assassination, and even the Holocaust, which was only beginning to be widely discussed, and which seemed to represent on a grand scale the phenomenon that one expert on the Genovese case called bad Samaritanism, end quote. After years of piecing together the evidence from Kitty's various neighbors, it is now believed that 12 or less people actually witnessed any of the two attacks and were aware of what was actually happening, two of which were known to have called the police. At the time of her murder, 911 was not a thing, and people instead had to call their local precinct and talk to an officer. Kitty's murder pushed authorities to create a better system for emergencies to ensure something on this scale would not happen again. And within four years, the 911 system was created. Kitty's murder also had another possible positive consequence, and that was the study of what is now known as the bystander effect. Sociologists and psychologists were fascinated with the fact that what they believed to be 38 people sat by idly while a young woman was murdered, and it sparked them to see exactly how something like this could happen. Studies in the years since Kitty's murder have found that people are less likely to act when there are others around, and are less likely to act the more people are present. The same year as Kitty's death, psychologists John Darley and Bib Latanay conducted an experiment they called the Bystander Apathy Experiment to see how people would react in a similar situation. They recruited university students who would be placed in a room alone with a microphone and were told they were talking to other students. However, they didn't know that the other students were pre-recorded and they were not talking to them in real time. Some people believed they were talking to only two others, while some thought they were talking to as many as five others. Each person had two minutes to introduce themselves, in which one student said he had epilepsy and was prone to seizures. Upon the student's second turn, he began to experience a seizure as he was talking, saying, I'm having, I'm, I'm having a fit. I, I think I'm, help me. I, I can't. Oh my God. If someone can just help me here, I, I I can't breathe properly. I'm feeling, I'm going to die. The participants could not see this man, but could hear him. The study wanted to see if people would seek help and how long it would take to act. 
The results showed that only 31% of the students got up and tried to seek help for this person they believed was actively having a seizure. The results also showed that those who believed they were only talking to two others were more likely to help than those who thought they were talking to five others. Another experiment in 1970 by Latene and Rodin consisted of only male students and had them either alone, paired up with a friend, or paired up with a stranger. While waiting for something else they believed was happening, they overheard a woman fall and cry out in pain, but could not see her. Results found that when alone, these men were more likely to seek help, and they were more likely to seek help when with a stranger than with a friend. Psychologists and sociologists still use Kitty's murder as an example of the bystander effect in their teachings, and hopes the people can learn from it. An article in the psychology website, A Very Well Mind, said, quote, What can you do to overcome the bystander effect? Some psychologists suggest that simply being aware of this tendency is perhaps the greatest way to break the cycle. When faced with a situation that requires action, understand how the bystander effect might be holding you back and consciously take steps to overcome it. However, this does not mean you should place yourself in danger. But what if you are the person in need of assistance? How can you inspire people to lend a hand? One often recommended tactic is to single out one person from the crowd. Make eye contact and ask that individual specifically for help. By personalizing and individualizing your request, it becomes much harder for people to turn you down, end quote. All right, well, that's going to be it for today's episode. I know it was a long one, so thank you for sticking with me. Uh, this is one of those cases that just has so much information and different perspectives. That's kind of hard to cram it all into one episode, but I hope that I was able to present Kitty's story in a concise way. Uh, I first watched the documentary The Witness a few years ago, and I had heard of this story, and I definitely remember learning about the bystander effect in college, but I had no idea how much more there was to this story. If you are interested in hearing more about Kitty's story and her family, I highly recommend that you watch the documentary. I watched it for free on Amazon Video. It, it was very good, very well done. Her brother, Bill, whose idea was to do this documentary, really struggled throughout his life with the fact that his sister, you know, died in such a horrible way and that nobody tried to help her. I cannot imagine. I'm sure it's something that he probably played over and over in his head for years. He and his family lived under the assumption that she died alone and that literally not a single person tried to help her. And you could almost like see the grief leave his body when he learned that her friend Sophie held her while she died. This story is so sad on so many levels because not only was the world robbed of an amazing person, but it's also just horrible how inaccurately the details of her death were reported and how it painted her neighbors as these like selfish people who just meh, just went back to bed, just didn't care that someone was getting murdered. I'm so glad that even though it did take 50 years, that eventually the truth was put out there, not only for Kitty, but also for her neighbors who probably lived with a lot of guilt and like the one woman who did an interview saying that she absolutely would help again, the woman who was holding Kitty when she died. And then to have the media misconstrue her words and her message, it would really just make you not trust anybody and just keep it inside and like live with that shame and that confusion probably. And it's very sad that a lot of these people 
um, have already passed on by the time that this documentary was put out and that these new articles were written and that they couldn't be alive to, you know, see the truth come out. I think that it's also important for us to be aware of the bystander effect and that our brains will try to convince us not to help for various reasons. So if anybody can learn from this episode, I hope that it is for us to find the power within ourselves to speak up when something isn't right or when someone is in danger, even if you're the first one and it's scary. A lot of people in these situations tend to think, well, I don't really know how to help. There's probably someone else that's going to be more capable to help. But that isn't always true. And if you are the first person to step up and help, then it's more likely to have other people also step up and help and kind of start that chain of action. If Kitty's neighbor, Carl Ross, would have opened his door and looked at Winston Mosley and told him, hey, I'm calling the police, he probably would have left. Sometimes it really, truly only takes one person doing the right thing um, or showing, a you know, an evil person like I'm watching you. Someone is here witnessing this to kind of scare them away. And, you know, it only takes one person sometimes to stop something tragic from happening. I think that especially in today's world with all the technology and distractions, you know, it's crucial for us to pay attention to our surroundings and what's happening with other people. And it can be really easy to just like put your head down and look at your phone and ignore things going on. Because I think even with social media, the whole point is to connect us more, but yet we've become more isolated and more drawn into ourselves in a lot of ways. And we're scared of getting involved, but we really need to trust our intuition. And if we feel like something isn't right or someone needs help, I think we should do whatever we can to help as long as, you know, we're not putting ourselves in danger in the process. Kitty really seemed to be quite the character and just an all around good person with lots of hopes and dreams for herself. The movie, The Witness, included a lot of photos and videos of Kitty, mostly from high school, like videos of her at the dance and the um, yearbook pictures of her with her friends. And she was just like so effortlessly cool. She looked like someone that would be like an influencer now, like almost ahead of her time, just like the short pixie cut hair, really cute clothes, just like drove this little fast little red Fiat. Um, she just seemed like an awesome person and someone that I think that I would have gravitated towards if I had met her in person. And it's really just so horrible what happened to her. And the world really seemed to be robbed from like a very bright light in her. And it's terrifying to know that people like Winston Mosley exist out there in the world. You know, all the people on the trial and the police officers that dealt with him all said that he was just pure evil and that he was very intelligent. And he got away with these things for a long time because he was manipulative and he knew how to evade being caught. And it's just scary to think that people can be out there living undetected. But I'm very glad that obviously that he never got paroled and that he died in jail where he should have. Um, because that man was obviously a menace to society and had no business living in the real world. I'm curious to hear what you all think of the story and whether or not you were familiar with it. And especially if you were aware of the real details versus the story of the 38 witnesses that's often told. If you heard about this in a college course or something, I would love to hear what you remember being taught about this. Um, 
and kind of like the the spin that your professor maybe put on this story because it does seem like it is still very inaccurately taught. And I think it's important and something that I really strive to do with this show is to not just cover the gory details of people's murders, but really try to find out who they were and get those details from their friends and family and classmates and go into who they were. Because, I mean, something horrible can happen to any of us. And um, I think we all would hope that uh, our personality was talked about and the good things that we did and how we made other people feel. And, and it was uh, very easy to do that with Kitty. There was nothing but good things that I could find about her. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining me today and for your continued support of the show. Next month will be my four year anniversary of Weird on the Rocks, which is crazy. And although my uploads are very sporadic these days, I apologize. And my listener number has definitely gone down. It's really awesome to see that there's still an audience of about 700 of you who listen to every episode and have stuck around. And um, I just can't thank you enough. And I'm glad you're on this ride with me. And hopefully um, it keeps going for a while. If there's a story or topic you'd like to hear me cover, please message me on Facebook or Instagram or shoot me an email at weirdontherocks at yahoo.com. And until next time, cheers and stay weird.